everyone. Well, thank you. <laughs> I have a very soft spot for the book of James. Many of you might not know that. Um, because when I was a young person, it was the book of James that sealed my fate and convinced me to give my life to Christ. I had read the Gospels and I loved the teachings of Jesus. I had worked my way through Acts, struggled on through Romans, waded my way through Paul's letters. But when I got to James, everything made sense. And although I didn't completely understand all the theology of some of the other books, James's simple and direct words struck a chord with me and I thought, that's the kind of faith that I want. And when we decided to do this series on James, secretly I had hoped that I would score this particular passage to speak to. But when Pastor Glenn prepared the preaching schedule, alas, it was not to be until Matt Painter was to step into the picture <laughs> and request a preaching spot. And I had to go to Pastor Glenn and say, oh, Matt wants a spot and it's going to mean we're all out of sequence. And, and he said, oh, that's all right. And secretly I was going, yes. <laughs> um, so with thanks to Matt, today I will be stepping you all through what I think is one of the best passages in one of my favourite books of the Bible. I think this is the heart and soul of the book of James. So if you've got your Bibles there or whatever little device you're using, would you turn with me to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction as the body without the spirit without the spirit is dead so 
Faith without deeds is dead. Now, whilst I love this passage, not everyone feels the same way. In fact, what we have before us today is the passage that has sparked one of the greatest and longest-running theological debates of all time. It is sometimes presented more like a battle, with different groups taking different sides. Perhaps something like this. In the blue corner, contending that we are justified by faith alone, represented by the Apostle Paul, supported by theological greats such as Martin Luther, and much of the Protestant church, we have faith. And in the red corner, contending that we are justified by what we do and not by faith alone, represented by James, and with the support of many great Christian charities and much of the Catholic church, we have works. Now, that's a very simplistic reading of this passage and of the teachings of Paul. For most of us, John 3.16 was the first passage of scripture that we learned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's very clear. Whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't say anything about what you have to do other than believe. And Paul makes the point even more clear in Ephesians 2, verses 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. These passages clearly teach that it is faith, not our works, that bring eternal life. Yet on first impression, our passage today seems to say just the opposite. For James says faith without works is dead. Likewise, when Paul speaks of justification or being made righteous or perfectly aligned with God, he speaks in this way, in Romans 3, 23 to 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Here, Paul is clearly teaching that justification is by faith alone. Yet again, on first impression, our passage today seems to say just the opposite. For James says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. First impressions can be deceptive. So today we're going to put these two head to head in an attempt to answer a very important question that many Christians, particularly new Christians, but many older Christians as well, continue to struggle with. Is faith alone sufficient to be saved or should faith be accompanied by works? 
So if you're ready, the battle will begin. Round one is the battle of context. And James begins his passage with two questions. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? And then, can such a faith save him? Now, the form of this question in the Greek indicates that James is asking a rhetorical question that demands a negative answer. There can be no other answer. So, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? The answer is it's no good. Can such a faith save him? The implied answer is a big, emphatic no, it can't. But you might say, hang on a minute, didn't we just hear from Paul in Ephesians that by grace you are saved by faith and not by works? Isn't this a clear example of the Bible contradicting itself? And the sceptics will point to these passages and say the Bible contradicts itself, can't believe a word it says. Well, the only thing these sceptics are proving with this sort of an argument is the very great danger in reading things out of context. You see, context matters. It matters a lot when you're reading the Bible. Both Ephesians and James are written as letters. They're designed to be read as letters, whole letters, not little portions of scripture out of the whole letter. And the word save means to deliver. But it only means to save or deliver from hell and thus receive eternal life if the context dictates that that's what it means. And in Ephesians 2, the context clearly tells us that we're being, we're being saved and delivered from sin and its consequences. So in the context of Ephesians, yes, being saved refers to being delivered from hell and receiving eternal life. But what is the context into which James speaks? Well, we need to read the letter. We need to look at what comes before and what comes after the particular passage that we're reading. Then we need to read the whole letter and get a feel for the overview of what he's talking about. And Pastor Glenn has been encouraging us every time we've been talking about the book of James to read the whole letter. And this passage today serves as a case in point as to why that is a very good idea. So our passage today is what I would call the filling in a judgment sandwich. Judgment is the immediate context into which this passage falls. The verses before it and the verses after it both speak of judgment. <clears throat> the verses before the passage, chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, James warns his readers to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And then in James chapter 3, verses 1, he warns that not many 
should become teachers because teachers will be judged more severely. And he's not talking about school teachers there. He's talking about teachers of God's word. So you might say, well, there you go, judgment. That's ultimately about when you, whether you go to heaven or hell. So James must be talking about that when he's talking about being saved. Is he? You can see how it's easy to get yourself tied in a knot in a passage such as this if you look at it with blinkers on and refuse to look outside the few verses that you're focusing on. You need to remove the blinkers and look around. So having looked at the immediate context that we know is, is talking about judgment, we need to look a little wider and look at the wider context. Who is James writing to? And what do we know about them? Well, we've emphasised repeatedly so far throughout this series that James is writing to Christians, to people who already are believers. These are Jewish background Christians. They're new Christians in a very young church and they are struggling. Not only with persecution, which is coming at them from the outside world, but also with how they should live together in community. And so James, with his wonderful pastoral heart, has written them this letter that is just packed full of all the things that young Christians need to know about how to live together. And one of the things that they need to know is about judgment. So with the wider context that he's talking to believers in focus, it's evident then that the kind of judgment that he must be talking about is the judgment that they themselves will face. For he tells them, speak and act as those who are going to be judged. Now if they're believers, this must be some sort of judgment that they're going to face. And he warns them that not many of them, including himself, should become teachers unless they understand that they're going to be judged more harshly. Now could any of us really imagine that James believed his own eternal destiny was uncertain. That's ridiculous. There are several types of judgment mentioned in the Bible, but Christians face only one of them, the judgment seat of Christ, which is also referred to as the bema, or the bema seat. This is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So this is not a judgment that affects our eternal destiny. It's not about heaven or hell, because that was already decided at the cross. All believers know where they're going. On that day, when Christians face the judgment seat of Christ, our eternal destiny is not in question. And our faith alone will not profit. So in context then, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him at the judgment seat of Christ? When we understand it in that context, we understand why the clear and emphatic answer to James's question is no. Because it's works that will be profitable at the judgment seat 
of Christ. Now James goes on to provide some practical examples and application of this in verses 16 and 17, demonstrating that works are profitable at the behemoth, but also they're profitable in helping others in the here and now. And he concludes with a statement saying that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And many have attempted to twist this statement to mean that faith without action is no faith at all. And that is not in context what James is saying here. What do you see in this image here? A dead tree. It's still a tree. You can still recognise that it's a tree. It's just dead and unproductive. You won't be getting any fruit from that tree anytime soon, anytime ever. And the same applies to our faith. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. It's still there. It still exists. It's just unproductive and you won't be getting any fruit from that tree or from that faith. So we move on. Round two. Round two, we introduce a new contestant into the ring, a theoretical objector. Now, before we proceed to the actual objection itself, I need to point out that there's a very small matter in these next few verses that causes a huge issue for this part of the passage. See if you can spot it on this next slide. The quotation marks. I did it nice and big in 28-point font, so you can't miss it. This issue of quotation marks. Very important, if you're going to put an objection in the mouth of an objector, you have to know where the objection starts and finishes. Now, this is a little more tricky than it sounds, because in the original Greek, there are no quotation marks. In fact, in some of the original manuscripts, there aren't even spaces between the words. It's just a big, long spiel of letters. So someone has to work out where the quotation marks have to go and where the quotation starts and ends. And this is a cause of much concern and much debate. But that's okay because the Greeks have another way of working out where quotations start and end. If you don't have quotation marks, you have to do something to indicate to the reader where the objection starts and where, it's, where it ends. And so when they were um, making a quotation, they would often have an opening comment. But someone will ask, or you might say, or someone will say. And then often to indicate where the quotation mark is, is to be closed, there'll be some form of a rebuttal statement. And often it's quite a derogatory rebuttal statement. So, in this particular example here from 1 Corinthians, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So it's quite easy to work out where the um, statement starts, and it's quite easy to work out where it ends. So that's where you put the quotation marks. 
I'll give you another example from Romans 9, 19 to 20. One of you will say to me, why then does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? So you can see there the opening statement, one of you will say to me, and the derogatory um, rebuttal, but who are you? So on the basis of that, where are we going to put the quotation marks in this statement? The King James avoids the issue altogether. It just leaves quotation marks out and you can figure it out for yourself. The New King James and the NIV and many other translations end the quotation halfway through verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. And they put the quotation there. The New American Standard Version takes it a little bit further, all the way to the end of verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. End the quotation there. The Good News and the Living Translation confuse the issue even further by adding in their own response statements. So they stick a response statement in there that's not actually in the text and say, but you said to me and I'll say to you. Well, that's not there at all. None of these take into account the fact that no derogatory rebuttal comes until you get down here to verse... Whoop, wrong way. To verse 20. You foolish person. And so if I were to put the quotation marks in, I would put them in here and here. And many scholars would agree with me, but there are many that don't. So this is something you can ponder over lunch as to where you think the quotation marks should be. To me, the objection of the objector makes a lot of sense if you put the quotation marks there where I've put them. And that objection is that there is no connection between faith and works. James is trying to build up a case that there is a connection between faith and works. They're intricately tied together. The objector is trying to say, no, there's no connection at all. He, uh, he's arguing that just because someone has faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that that will result in actions, and just because someone does good deeds, it doesn't necessarily mean they have any faith at all. It doesn't tell you anything about their faith. And as proof of this, he points to the demons. And he says they have great theology about God, but it goes without saying that their works are evil, not good. Therefore, says the objector, there's no connection. So how does James respond to this? Well, we need to go to the next round. He appeals to the father of the nations. It's like bringing out the big guns into your battle. Kind of like saying, introducing the international heavyweight champion of the faith, Abraham. And so he makes his appeal to the father of the nations. But there's a problem here. Someone else has made an appeal to the father of the nations. And that's Paul, back in Romans chapter 3 and 4, and also Galatians 2 and 3. He appeals to Abraham, but he speaks of Abraham as being justified or considered righteous by faith, aside from works. 
Yet James says in verse 21 that Abraham was justified by what he did, his works, in offering his son. So how can we marry up the two? Can they be married up? Well, this is a huge topic. Um, it's probably worthy of a sermon series in itself. Um, and maybe we can cover it in more detail, but perhaps sufficient to point out that Paul and James are appealing to completely different events in the life of Abraham. Paul appeals to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, where um, he was told that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and Abraham believed, and it was credited to him. James is appealing to something that happened 15 years later in the life of Abraham, in Genesis chapter 2, when he willingly offered his son to God, but God intervened, providing a ram for the sacrifice. Now, James would have been well acquainted with the life of Abraham, and he would have studied the Pentateuch, and he knew that Abraham had faith back in chapter 15 of Genesis. What he's trying to point out here to the objector is that over the intervening 15 years, Abraham's faith was maturing and it was being evidenced by his works. Abraham's righteous action in offering up his son, Isaac, was evidence of his genuine faith. Or you might say it was the fruit of his faith. And the same can be said for the second example which is given, that of Rahab, whose faith was evidenced by her willingness to put her own life in danger by hiding the Israelite spies. So in this way, says James, it is the faith of both Abraham and Rahab being tied to their works. So examining the all-important context, we see that Paul and James were addressing two very different issues here. Paul was addressing the Jews, who were rejecting the gospel because they thought that obedience to the Jewish law was enough for them under their covenant. Whereas James is addressing Christians who are now living lives as though it doesn't matter the way in which they live to God because they've already been saved. Moving on then to round four. Round four is all about the giants of the faith. And here I want to talk about Hebrews. Hebrews 11 is the well-known giants of the faith passage. First and foremost, this chapter is about faith. But on closer examination, it is perhaps the best evidence we have on the relationship between faith and works. Have a look at what is in this passage. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. Noah built an ark. Abraham obeyed and went and then offered Isaac. Isaac blessed. Jacob blessed and worshipped. Moses hid. Moses' parents hid him. Moses chose to be mistreated. The people passed through the sea. Joseph spoke and then gave. Israelites marched. Rahab welcomed. Every example that is put forward of faith in this passage 
links it with the works that they produced. Faith and works are tied together. Round five is the final round. And it is the battle of self. The most difficult round of all. It's all very well to engage and enjoy theological debate, discuss the merits of various points of view, and marvel at the faith of those who have gone before us. But at some point, we have to mature. And the evidence of that in our own faith lives will be borne out in the works that we do. As James says of Abraham in verse 22, his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he does. Now James concludes his passage with this analogy, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And we've talked already about that meaning unprofitable, unfruitful or useless. Faith without deeds, he says, is useless. So what does a useless kind of faith look like? Well, I would suggest it's the kind of faith that meets no practical need at all. It's the kind of faith that likes to talk a lot about the problems in the world, the problems in the community around us, the problems even within the church, but it makes no attempt to do anything about it. It's the kind of faith that likes to come along and be fed, but never to get involved. It's also the kind of faith that is largely invisible to others outside of the church. Take the person away from the church and they look no different to anybody else. Just as there is no doubt that a dead tree is still a tree, there is no doubt that this person is still a Christian. It's just that no one in the outside world beyond the four walls of the church would ever know because there's no evidence. A useless faith is also the kind of faith that doesn't ever mature because it's never put into practice. Its boundaries are never tested, its skills are never honed, no risks are ever taken, and the sheer joy of working in a power that you know is not your own is never experienced because that person never puts themselves in a position where they would ever have to do that. Consider the builders that we have here on site. They're qualified tradespeople, each of them with many power tools, powered and unpowered tools in their kit. These men know the value of their tools, so they look after them. They clean them, they sharpen them, they oil them, and they lock them away at night. They look the part. They wear the right gear, tradey sort of fluoro gear. They drive the right vehicles, tradey kind of vehicles, and they talk tradey kind of talk. It's obvious that they're tradesmen. Now imagine if every day they continued to arrive here on site wearing their tradie gear, driving their tradie cars and talking their tradie talk. But day after day, their tools remained in the site office in their protective coverings, untouched because they were too scared, too lazy, too busy, 
too distracted to ever use them. Well, initially we might not notice, but I think over time we'd start to realise that nothing was happening on site. And we'd start to wonder, are these tradesmen really qualified at all? Do they know how to use these tools? What exactly are they doing? In fact, are they even tradespeople at all? You see, it's easy to look like a tradesperson. I could probably do it if I had some fluoro gear and a tradesman ute. I think I could pull the look off, but I'd pretty soon be found out because there would be no evidence of my ability in any sort of trade. Likewise, it's very easy to look like a Christian. Turn up at church on Sunday, mix with other Christians, talk the right talk, put a Bible in your hand. But unless you actually read the Bible and start doing what it says, it's about as useful to us as tradesmen tools that sit in the shed with their protective covers still on. And so the choice is ours to exist but be useless and unproductive like the dead tree or to have a faith which is alive, useful and productive. So I hope that as we've worked our way through this passage, it's become obvious that there is absolutely no conflict between the teachings of Paul and those of James. The battleground that has been created between the two simply doesn't exist. Indeed, the very title of my message today, Faith versus Works, is a misnomer because faith and works go hand in hand, not in opposition to one another. So to answer the question posed right back at the beginning, is faith alone sufficient to be saved or should faith be accompanied by works? The answer is yes and yes. Our works don't get us eternal life, nor do they prove that we have it, but they do make our faith profitable for that time when we will stand before the Beamer judgment seat of Christ. They do enable us to meet the practical needs of others. They do make our faith visible to others and attractive to the world around us. And they do help us to mature and to grow in our faith. Our works then are the fruit, not the root of our salvation. So my prayer is that for all of us, our roots will be strong and healthy and our fruit will be plentiful. Amen. I'm going to ask the musos if they could come up and lead us in our final song.